And I'm LP. And today we're doing Dame Aviatrixes. Aviatrices. Aviatrices. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm raising my glass of old, or my can of old chub to Bessie Coleman, or Queen Bess, who was the first African-American to get an international pilot's license and the first African-American period to fly an airplane. No shit, really? Yeah, definitely. Wow. The first African-American to fly an airplane was definitely a fucking chick. Um, who are you raising your glass to? I am raising my uh, Shed Mountain Ale to Poncho Barnes, aviatrix, adventurer, union organizer, and barkeep. My kind of name. I love the name Poncho for a chick. Oh, oh, you'll see, you'll see. <laughs> All right, Bessie was born on January 26, 1892 in Atlanta, Texas, into a racist and violent southern community and an increasingly economically depressed country, the 1880s and 1890s being the time when rich industrialists created monopolies because of high tariffs and non-unionized workers worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week. But Bessie's family had moved to Waxahachie, Texas, which had been proclaimed the, quote, largest cotton-producing county in the U.S. So the family had managed to actually end up in a place that was fairly untouched by the Depression. Bessie's father, George, had managed to save some money as a day laborer, but in 1901, when Bessie was about nine, he left the family. Mm -hmm. um, a family with 13 children, by the way. <laughs> Her father leaving was an event which was surely sad, but didn't break the will of Bessie's resolute mother. Bessie had not only inherited her mother's intractability, but it was the trait which dominated Bessie's life and prompted her to become the first African-American to become a pilot. Bessie's mother would often say that she had 13 children, raised up nine, and one of them was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and the crazy one was Bess. As a teen, Bessie worked as a laundress in Waxahachie and received about an equivalent of a seventh grade education. Even after a semester at a preparatory school, Near Oklahoma City, she well, which she had to quit because she'd run out of cash. She wanted more than anything else to get the fuck out of Waxahachie. She loved learning and studying whenever she'd been permitted. She knew for a fact, she knew she didn't want to get married to a day laborer at the cotton fields and settle down. <laughs> so in 1915, she'd saved some cash and was finally able to leave Waxahachie for Chicago. She went there to stay with her older brother, Walter, who'd been living in Chicago for over 10 years. She was part of a mass migration of blacks from the South, um, which had doubled Chicago's black population from the period of 1910 to 1920. Doris Rich, her biographer, describes the move, as, move that Bessie made as, quote, leaving the segregation of the South for the ghettos of the North, which people were doing in mass. Bessie defied the status quo for young black women working in Chicago, though, by becoming a, beautic a beautician instead of a domestic worker or a laundress or a school teacher. Ooh. Profession of beautician was controversial, though. Um, can you guess why? Um, I'm assuming because you were still um, helping white ladies look pretty? I don't know. <laughs> no, um, among the black community, she was a beautician for blacks. Um, oh, okay. But that revolved mostly around... Making yeah. black people look white, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, because of all the skin lighteners and hair straighteners... Skin lightener? Ugh. That can't be good for you. Yeah, she didn't really care about this at all. Uh, yeah, the controversy still exists today, of course. She didn't care even then when it was really, uh, I would say, an even bigger issue than it is today. Which I kind of think is mainly because she was just excited to be learning a new skill and be independent and learning a profession. 
And she was super charming, super cute. She was really good at it. But one cri critic in Bessie's day, a Chicago educator named Nanny Burroughs, wrote, quote, what every woman who bleaches and straightens out needs is not her appearance, her appearance changed, but her mind changed. If Negro women would use half the time they spend on trying to get white to get better, the race would move forward apace, unquote. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> she enrolled in the Burnham School of Beauty Culture. She took her course and specialized in manicuring, becoming an extremely popular and talented manicurist. Again, very cute, very nice. She worked on what's called the Stroll of State Street in Chicago, which was one of the most famous streets of Africa America in the 1910s and 1920s. Um, only other streets or, or neighborhoods that rivaled it were streets in the Bronx and Harlem. Even though Bessie had already moved north, gotten married, she did get married. She got married? Yeah, she got married, but it was oh. like, meh. She, <laughs> it was to an older guy, and, and to be honest, it wasn't the most interesting part of her life for me. Um, <laughs> or for her, so I was like, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so she got married, she'd become skilled in a trade, and she eventually left the husband, so it didn't fucking matter. <laughs> uh, she became skilled in a trade manicuring, but she wasn't satisfied, and she wanted always, always, she would tell everybody around her she wanted to amount to something, which was kind of kind of rare uh, for, for a young black woman in those days. She wasn't even just satisfied in doing something like being a manicurist, which was in itself not normal. One day, her brother, who was home from the war, World War I, she came in, he came into Duncan's Barbershop where she worked on the stroll. Uh, Bessie was working, and he started talking mad shit to Bessie about how much better French women were than Chicago women. <laughs> uh, somewhere in there, he said that young black women were never going to fly airplanes the way French women did. Bessie. Sounds like a bear who was sitting at her manicurist desk, already kind of like getting bored with being a manicurist, thinking about what she should do next, rather blithely responded, that's it, you just called it for me. <laughs> she made up her mind she was going to be a flyer. So she went around town looking for flyer lessons. On the advice, she well, she didn't get any flyer lessons from uh, white flyers. She went and actually asked a lot of because the only people who were flying, of course, were white. They said no on account of the fact that you are black, a woman, very young, and you're a manicurist. Hell no. So her friend Robert Abbott, who was the editor-publisher of the Chicago Defender, which was a big African-American magazine, he, he told her that she should enroll in French classes. Like her brother, had, who had come home from the war, you know, said... France has a lot of great schools, you should go to France. Compared to the States at the time, it was also extremely not racist. Uh, oh yeah, definitely. The French were no racists. <laughs> Although the, there was a really racist American expatriate community in France, uh, and it could be rather bellicose, with one expatriate American warning that they would take action to deport, quote, Negroes who infest the Montmartre section continually insulting, assaulting, and robbing tourists, unquote. Whoa. Despite this, however, the African-American community in Paris thrived and had much less beef with their French hosts, and later in 1925, um, Josephine Baker would go there and become really popular. <laughs> and a total badass. We'll get to her eventually. <laughs> um, when Bess filled out her passport, she wrote down that she was four years younger than she was, which is a chronic habit of hers. <laughs> she flew to Paris on November 20th, 1920, walked around looking at schools. Yeah, she had no plan 
to what school she was going to before she went. Um, one she came across didn't want to teach women because they trained two girls before who died in crashes, so they wanted to not get any more shit for abetting the death of the fairer sex. Eventually, Bess chose France's most famous flying school, the Fédération Aeronautique Internationale. International. She trained for seven months, though she went on to routinely tell people she'd been there for ten months. <laughs> Bess was she was a really why would she overstate it? <laughs> she was a really great embellisher. <laughs> no, but I would think you'd want to brag like, oh, I learned it in two weeks. What are you talking about? <laughs> I well, you know, like she was the well, you got to think she was the first. She was the first woman to get a well. No, I'm sorry. She was not the first woman to get her pilot's license. She was the first African American woman to come back with her pilot's license. Right. You want to sound like you have. A lot of experience under your belt. True, true. Um, this is at a time when people would go down regularly and die in accidents. And she knew she would be coming back. One of her great dreams was to come back and start an aviation school. So I guess she kind of wanted throughout this whole thing to make people feel a little safer and be like, oh, she has 10 months instead of 7 months. One further thing she kept talking about was the the fact that she had, she had ordered a custom-built plane from France, but it never materialized. We don't know if she was actually lying or that just things fell through. But she would regularly lie. She would regularly just tell the press a lot of just patently false things. <laughs> um, her biographer, this Doris Rich, provides compelling reason for the motivation for Bessie's tale-telling. Uh, she writes, quote, Bessie realized that to make a living at flying, she would first have to dramatize herself and began to draw upon everything at her command. If the reporters were going to create her public image, she was going to sculpt its details. Fair enough. One time she told a New York Times reporter that she learned to fly with a Red Cross unit in France during the First War. Uh, she said that she'd persuaded the officers to give her flight lessons while she was a nurse. Which is completely fucking not, it's not true at all. <laughs> Went over by herself and found a school. And which is actually way more impressive. Right? She just picked up stakes and was like, I'm going to France. Why? To learn how to fly, obviously. So, Bess trained in a French Newport Type 82, which was a favorite learner's plane in France at the time. Um, the Jenny plane was the favorite in the U.S., and she would get one later on. Since the sound of the Newport's engine was too loud for her to always hear her instructor, though, she mainly learned by watching her own stick and rudder move as he moved his. The hmm. plane was about 27 feet. It was a 27-foot biplane with a 40-foot wingspan. It was made of wire, wood, steel, aluminum cloth, and pressed cardboard. Cardboard. <laughs> Structural fa failure in the air was very common. <laughs> sure enough, while training, best witness, the fatal accident of another student, about which she said, quote, It was a terrible shock to my nerves, but I never lost them. Hmm. Uh, in another interview, Bessie said she liked to, quote, fly high because the higher you fly, the better the chance you have in case of an accident. Kind of true. Um, okay. <laughs> and she actually would later get in an accident um, when she was not high, that high off the ground. So, <laughs> Bessie received her international pilot's license on June 15th, 1921, and she was the first African-American to earn such a qualification. Wow. And the first American period to receive this qualification from this prestigious French flying school. Since this was the case, she was loathed a quite a bit by men of her own race for her success, uh, for being a woman, and occasionally for her quips at their expense. Ooh? Yeah. She once 
rather blithely said that she was, quote, thrilled to know we have men who are physically fit. Now what is needed is men who are not afraid of death, unquote. Oh my god. <laughs> um, yeah. And it was around this period that a num a whole swath of African-American women were becoming, by and large, more an independent Many women were becoming professors at Howard University, and there was kind of a backlash within the Afri the male African-American community, and an article appeared in the American Amsterdam News that was titled, quote, Colored Women Venturing Too Far from Children, Kitchen, Clothes, and Children. Wait, I just said children. <laughs> Sorry, I thought that you meant that they actually printed that twice. <laughs> it's like, wow, Jesus, they're really emphasizing this. <laughs> the Air Service News back in New York reported that Bessie, though, had become a full-fledged aviatrix, the first of her race. Um, she was completely famous. Though she wasn't the first flyer, the first flyer was Baroness Elise, a.k.a. Raymond de la Roche from France, who received her first pilot's, li pilot's license in 1910. Who, by the way, when I was researching mm -hmm. her, just to digress a little bit, the first woman to ever fly, Ron L. Hubbard. Yeah, the Ron L. Hubbard. What? Yeah, the Ron L. Hubbard wrote a novel based off of. <laughs> wait, wait, dude, L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> Scientology Hubbard uh, wrote a, a science fiction novel based off of her story called Sky. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay, but back to best. After graduating with her basic international license. Uh, she went on to do a two-month advanced flying course. But since she was determined to start her own aviation school back in the States that would teach flyers regardless of their race, creed, or color, she knew she wouldn't stay in France, unlike a lot of her contemporary um, expatriates who would remain there for quite some time, like Baker. So after the two months of advanced flying courses, Bess left France to see Amsterdam and Germany. She arrived in Germany on May 24th, 1922. She'd wanted to go to Germany to meet up with this guy, Anthony H.G. Fokker, who was a Dutch airplane designer, world famous. Uh, he was married to a German woman, and who he had also, he'd also been coerced by the Germans into designing airplanes for the German forces in World War I. World War I. He'd been wily enough, however, to move his entire situation to Holland before the Allied forces could confiscate all of his shit as enemy spoils. So he managed to have all of it. So when Bess visited, she spent some time with he and his wife, and she got to fly a lot of his planes around, which is kind of cool. Nice. But outside of Fokker and his wife, she made friends pretty quickly within the aviation circles of Germany and found some planes she could putter around over war-torn, defeated Germany in, one of which had a 220-horsepower engine, which is pretty impressive. She was filmed in Berlin flying over the defeated Kaiser's Palace and received a letter... Received a letter from a German war ace named Captain Keller, which lauded her for her unusual skill during 50 flights and for being just a badass little flyer in Germany. Nice. She arrived back in the States. Her old friend Robert Albert from the Chicago Defender, who would encourage her to take up flying in France in the first place, gave Bessie a desk in the New York office of the newspaper and had the staff there start arranging an air show for her in honor of all the black of the all-black 369th Infantry Re Regiment of World War One. Wow. Yeah. So she flew over that whole thing, the whole parade they had for them. She was kind of the center, the, the, the main star. On September 3rd, 1922, Bess did the first public flight of a black woman in America in front of a crowd of either one or 3,000 people, depending on the reporter you read. 
before an air show, though, later at the Checkerboard Aerodrome in Chicago, a report claimed that Bessie's younger sister named Georgia was going to do a drop of death and parachute out of Bessie's plane. <laughs> well, if she has a parachute, I don't really see what the problem is. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's the 1920s, so... Hmm. <laughs> well, nobody had ever attempted this at the time. Really? Jumped out of a plane? Well, it was reported in the newspaper. Okay, I'm sorry. It was reported in the newspaper that nobody had ever attempted this, which wasn't true because some dude, <laughs> some dude in Venice Beach actually had done it in 1911. Fucking stoners. Um, <laughs> you know, the people who read the newspaper were amazed and they were very excited. And Bess thought it would be original and spectacular. Mm-hmm. The problem was nobody had cleared this with Georgia herself. And <gasps> Turns out Georgia didn't think this sounded like a reasonable thing for any human to do. And so the sister, uh, the story with her sister goes that Bessie just came home one night, with the night before, with a costume for her sister to wear for this, and just nonchalantly began giving her sister instructions on how to jump. Which would be theoretical, because no one really did that. Really did it, right? Bessie was just guessing. So I'd love to know what exactly the instructions were. <laughs> Like, so, it'll be best if you do this, not that there's any fucking body of empirical evidence to know that that's correct, and you won't just die if you do it that way. Good luck! We're pretty sure this'll work. (laughs) As you might expect, Georgia refused flat out, while Bess just yelled back at her, You'll do what I tell you to. (laughs) Finally, Georgia just gave what is written in the book as a, "Uh uh-uh, not me. And it was settled. <laughs> Sorry, we'll never... And uh, so Georgia just sat on the sidelines. She didn't jump. And she just watched Bess while the hometown crowd sitting in the audience. But just after the checkerboard aerodromes show, Bessie was offered a movie role. What? Yeah. Awesome. Um, this is... Now, this, this story just really epitomizes Bess's great moxie for me. <laughs> the film was to be financed by the African-American Seminole Filming Producing Company and was called Shadow and Sunshine. But three weeks after filming had commenced, an angry story written by a Billboard critic named Jackson said that Bessie had, quote, threw it up and quit cold. Can you guess why? Why? Okay. Well, in her first scene, they wanted her to dress in old, torn clothing with a walking stick, playing an ignorant girl just arrived in New York. It took her about as long as it just took for me to explain that before she retorted, no Uncle Tom's stuff for me, and she left the set forever. (laughs) Um, Girl. (laughs) Doris Rich explains in her biography, quote, she was fighting on two fronts in defense of equal rights for blacks in a white-dominated society and equal rights for black women in a male-dominated black society. Opportunist though she was about her career, she was never an opportunist about race. She had no intention of perpetuating the derogatory image most whites had of most blacks, unquote. Way to go. I mean, she's like, I flew, I went all the way to France to learn how to fly a plane. And you guys want me to act like that? (laughs) Chris Rock talks a lot about this as well, uh, about how- Wait, shut up. Chris Rock likes Bessie Coles? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. Talks about having experienced this um, when, with his own career in acting. You know, not that they're particularly racist, but that it's just so normal to insist that black people play a particular type of role to which Chris Rock was like, 
fuck you, in a very similar way to Bessie Coleman, but Bessie Coleman was doing it in the 1920s. <laughs> I didn't mean to defame Chris Rock. I'm sure he knows who Bessie Coleman is. <laughs> but unfortunately, she walked off the set with no agent, sponsor, contract, or plane. So yeah, she had very little prospects at this point. She was just stranded in California. <laughs> yeah. Well, luckily, out in California, she was eventually able to secure her very own Jenny plane by charging um, an advertisement man and his agency money to drop advertisements from the air. Hmm. Right away, after she got her plane, Bessie scheduled an exhibition flight at a new fairgrounds in Palomar Park on February 4th, 1923. 10,000 people came to watch, but just after taking off from Santa Monica, very low off the ground, her motor stalled just at 300 feet in the air. She nosedived into the ground and was unconscious. Oh my god. Kind of went up in flames, but they pulled her from the wreckage. She'd broken her leg, cracked some ribs, but when she awoke, she begged the doctors to patch her up so she could continue with her show. (laughs) Having now crashed her plane, though, she had both health and money problems, and she left L.A. for Chicago penniless, planeless again, and with a few cracked ribs and stitches. And her fans were kind of dicks about it. They were like, whoa, why the fuck would you crash? (laughs) So that was also a little discouraging. (laughs) She'd also managed to either alienate or be alienated by managers for incomplete contracts slash a truculent attitude. So she took a rest for a while. She got an apartment, had some tea parties, (laughs) strolled the stroll in Chicago again. But not for too long. She's Bessie. Like her mother had always said, Bessie was crazy and determined. She started looking for a gig in the air circus, and after 18 months of searching, she found a gig in Texas. When she arrived in Texas, she of course told everyone she was 23, although she was more like 33. (laughs) She looked young. She didn't... Everybody believed her. And as she often had to, she stayed with sweet, uh, hospitable black families since most accommodation wasn't available available to blacks, so there were no hotels for her. Yeah. Her first flight was on June 19, 1925 in Houston. She did barrel rolls, dived, did loop-de-loops, figure eights, and after that performance, she became the air circus heroine of Texas. While in Houston, Bessie also took the opportunity to encourage black women to get involved in aviation by giving lectures and flying lessons to them. She awesome. believed that African-American women made better activists to advance the race politically and socially in society, actually. She just thought they were less aggressive than black men and they would be seen in a kinder light um, within white society. Hmm. Yeah. Probably didn't win her a lot of points with black men (laughs) on top of her comments about them being pussies. But (laughs) Also in Texas, Bessie bought a plane at the famous Love Field Airfield in Dallas and while there was super pleasantly surprised to find that the male pilots could have given a fuck about her race or gender, and mainly just wanted to talk about piloting. (laughs) She bought a Curtis Southwestern airplane and motor company with a JN4, an OX5 engine, same type of engine as the Jenny she'd crashed in California. This plane would later become the fatal vessel for Bess, though. She started giving more and more lectures to people in the South after she'd returned from Texas and was spending time throughout the South doing a mixture of lecturing, giving flying lessons, and doing air shows. The plane she'd purchased in Dallas was apparently pretty rickety and looked it. (laughs) All the people in her life who had seen it, like her, her family especially, had begged her not to fly it. But she did anyway, because what the fuck did they know about planes? Which I'm kind of with her on, like, you know? I learned how to fly in a cardboard plane. (laughs) Really? (laughs) 
So Bessie was doing a preparation flight for an air show the next day in Jacksonville, Florida with her mechanic slash publicity agent named William Wills. Kind of an unfortunate name. Uh, I but <laughs> the plane went down 10 minutes into the flight. Aww. Instead of pulling out of a dive, the plane spun to the ground. Actually, a wrench had just been left and jammed the gearbox. That's it? There wasn't anything wrong with the plane other than someone left a wrench in there? Mm, yeah. The mechanic, William Wills. So you were right. <laughs> Not a name to trust. Not a name to trust. Bessie, she hadn't been wearing her seatbelt. And because she hadn't been wearing her seatbelt. Well, she she wasn't wearing a seatbelt because she was scouting terrain. But anyways, she was thrown 2,000 feet, died instantly when she hit the ground. And William Wills died in the flames. She was just 34 years old. Although I'm sure she'd prefer us to say that she was like 26 or something. <laughs> wow. Yeah. She'd inspired blacks and whites alike, though. One white guy... Paul McCulley became the national governor of the OX5 Pioneers and said of Bessie, quote, I credit this lady with helping me launch my flying career. While she wasn't able to see her dream fulfilled of having an aviation school that taught people regardless of race, creed, or color, we eventually got there in part because of her tireless, tireless insistence that we do. This guy pilot, Lieutenant William J. Powell, founded the Bessie Coleman Aero Club in 1929, and now anyone can fly based on race, creator, color. Awesome. Yeah. Every time you make it one step ahead, they just pull you back. Shake them up, say you better see them dead. Stay right where you're at. Don't stop, stop, don't stop, stop. Kill, you gotta kill. Pancho Barnes was not born that. She was born Florence Leontine Lowe in 1901 in California, the daughter of a wealthy woman, Florence Mae Dobbins, and a formerly old-moneyed Thaddeus Lowe Jr. She was the second child. She had a sickly older brother, William, who was her mother's favorite and died when she was a teenager. Florence's mother wanted her to be proper, but her father and grandfather loved to indulge her adventurous streak. Her grandfather, probably because he knew something, about adventuring himself. Some people call him the grandfather of the American Air Force since he conceived of and operated a corps of reconnaissance hot air balloons during the Civil War. It was a really dangerous job as both Union and Confederate troops alike would take pot shots at him because they're like, what the fuck is that thing up there? Let's shoot it. <laughs> so he just lined the observation basket with sheet metal and like called himself the most shot at man in the Civil War. <laughs> her grandpa would regale Florence with these kinds of stories and took her out with him, including presciently to air shows. Um, he died when she was 12 and she was left in the charge of her mother who didn't know what the hell to do with her. And her father, who seemed too busy with his own failed business ventures and all that, to try to discipline her, even when he was just like, all right, this isn't funny anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so in her teen years, she was bounced from public to private to convent school to try to get her to, like, straighten out and turn into the debutante her mother had wanted her to be. But Florence had already made a sort of decision about her life. Living in society like she did, she looked at the slim, pretty, proper girls around her and then at herself with her thicker frame, her mother's round face, and knew she could either spend the rest of her life apologizing for not being those girls, or for that matter, wanting to be, or having a hell of a good time. And she chose the latter. <laughs> her schools did not see eye to eye on that. <laughs> 
fuckers. But they weren't really fond of when she would run off on horseback to Tijuana or gamble or cuss or smoke. (laughs) Yes. I want to run on horseback to Tijuana. I know. For you, it would be kind of a long trip. That's true. She was at least in Southern California. (laughs) I love this story. So one time her longtime roommate at her last school one day comes up to her room and finds Florence Horse just standing there in the room. (laughs) Like, just standing there, like, just chewing, looking at her horse in my room. So Florence gets called to the headmistress's office, and she denies culpability, saying, Poor Dobbins. He must have been so lonesome that he even came upstairs to find me. Oh, Her horse was named Dobson? Dobbins, which, now that I think about it, is her mother's maiden name, so that's probably why. Okay. So her extremely rich maternal grandmother, shall we say, influenced the school through several renovations, so Florence managed to graduate. (laughs) Their commencement speaker was a young, handsome Episcopalian minister named Calvin Rankin Barnes, and that gave Florence's family another idea. If Catholic school hadn't set young Florence straight, perhaps an arranged marriage would. A donation to the rectory, and one would imagine a whole lot of persuasion at Florence later, and there was a beautiful society wedding and an extremely awkward honeymoon. <laughs> the groom, after consummating the marriage, informed his bride that would not be happening again as it made him nervous. <laughs> So now she was Florence Barnes. So Florence had been this carefree, affluent tomboy who could ride horses, run around all day. And then suddenly she was a minister's wife and she was supposed to be managing a, you know, middle to lower class household. And then she found out she was pregnant. I know from that. Nine months later, she had a little boy, uh, Billy, named after her older brother who died and life was fucking miserable. All of her husband's parishioners were secretly in love with him, she reckoned. Uh, They'd call him, he's like, you know, ladies, in the middle of the night with some spiritual crisis. And so in order that there would be no appearance of impropriety, Florence would have to get up with him, bring little Billy and wait in the car. So that way, if the spiritually despondent lady made a pass at Calvin, which he seemed terrified of, but totally certain it would happen, he could just point out to them, no, 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 my wife's in the car, little lady. (laughs) <laughs> so she knew she could really stand that for a lot longer this like I'm, I'm sorry somewhat reminds me of like Catherine the Great's marriage like modern version just awful awful tasks until you can finally get rid of them I guess minus the throne it's a lot less drastic than assassination <laughs> see Florence doesn't opt for assassination or overthrow she just starts getting herself a career outside of the house so first at first like she's right near Hollywood so she gets a job being a wrangler for one of the family horses being used on a Hollywood set from there she would be his rider in the movie or script girl and finally even second camera script doctor whatever would get her enough money to be paying someone to be a nurse for billy and do all the housekeeping at home (laughs) that her husband wanted done and she had absolutely no inclination to do and then in 1924 her mother died and so her mother was still in kind of a strained relationship with florence over her complete lack of interest in her societal duties and it was a real emotional blow Uh, Within weeks, her father had taken up with a woman only three years older than Florence. 
What? So, yeah, Florence had kind of a nervous breakdown from this all. And since she was an early 20th century woman in crisis, the prescription was to stay bedridden. After a few months, she said, to hell with this deathbed bullshit, I'm rich, and took up train hopping around the country for several months. Nice. And it apparently cured her, because she returned fully healthy to a mansion and a beach house and a huge inheritance. So, under the aspects of needing to oversee the estate, she and the Reverend became even less married than they had been. <laughs> She'd spend her days on Hollywood sets and her nights partying in one house or another, and discovered after embarking on an affair that... Sex was a lot more fun when it wasn't with her husband. <laughs> but yeah, she'd still occasionally play the minister's wife at teas, and, you know, she got kind of encouraged to leave the country for a bit when it turned out that everyone was hearing about her, like, ridiculous parties. What do you mean, what do you, what do you mean kind of encouraged to leave the country? Well, like, she wasn't kind of encouraged to leave town, and she wound up on this, like, South American cruise where she had an affair with a Texas oil man. Anyway, that part's not important. <laughs> That sounds extremely important. <laughs> no, no, wait till you hear what's coming next. Okay. <laughs> anyway, then came her defining journey, where she became Poncho. So, when she was 27, she was sitting around drinking with her group of associates. Some Hollywood set people, a lawyer, an architect, and they come up with this hilarious idea to get themselves all hired on a South American-bound banana boat. And then, unlike so many other drunken schemes most of us have, the next morning they woke up and did just that. <laughs> Florence stuffed her hair in a cap, put on men's clothes, and signed on as Jacob Crane. She did some other stuffing, too. The fabulous documentary, The Legend of Poncho Barnes and the Happy Bottom Riding Club, quotes her as saying, I know what you're thinking. I took a bandana, tied it in a knot, and stuffed it into my jeans. I had the best-looking balls on the boat. <laughs> When the group got to sea, they found out that their banana boat was actually a gun-running boat for Mexican revolutionaries. <laughs> this didn't worry them terribly until the boat made port on the way at back after dropping off the guns, and the authorities of the port seized the ship for use as a floating shelter for their valuables because the town was under siege by bandits in Mexico. So after six weeks of being stuck on this boat, Florence sees that another one of her crewmates was planning an escape, and she demanded that he take her with him. That was Roger Shute, and they wound up being lifelong friends. So she persuaded him that she'd make for good backup, and they go in this, like, epic meandering journey after they get off the trip. Like, one of my favorites is they find themselves in Mexico City on Cinco de Mayo, and though Americans aren't welcome there, they really can't stand the idea that they're missing out on this bitchin' party. So they decide to pretend they're German. <laughs> Which, because they don't know German, <laughs> consists of them repeating lines from this German song that they both know, and then just laughing at each other like they've told a really good joke. <laughs> And just sitting in a Mexico City bar and drinking. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, it's a story that makes me regret that, like, she never actually wrote an autobiography, and, like, she tried to write pulp novels and was a script doctor, and apparently she was a really great storyteller. But anyway, from what I gather from other people's accounts of this, it's a crazy story. There's steamships, there's hitchhiking, border jumping, there's her dragging him two miles through the desert to this oil refinery. With the, like, nearest hospital, because he, like, was diving in coral and got an infected cut or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And at some point in the journey, he's on this white horse, and she's on this little burrow. And she jokes at him that he looks like Don Quixote. 
And he replies that that makes her Poncho. I mean, he really must have meant Sancho Panza, but she kind of liked the sound of Poncho better. (laughs) I agree. So it took her seven months to get back home after that drunken decision to sign on to the banana boat. And she could look back on that time knowing that she'd survived on her wits and capability as opposed to just her money. Mm. Not that she was, like, you know, shy about spending her money, but, yeah, she knew that she'd done it because, you know, she was capable of thinking on her feet and knowing what she was doing. Mm -hmm. And that knowledge made her feel like a new person, so she started going by Poncho Barnes. And she got back right in time for the start of the golden age of aviation. So what's a filthy rich girl with a newfound sense of self-reliance and a thirst for adventure to do but learn how to fly? Um, Her cousin, Dean Banks, was taking pilot lessons at the time, so he took her with him to the airfield one day. Dean's teacher uh, was a Ben Caitlin who'd perhaps had his fill of young ladies getting caught up in the aviation fever of the day. So when Poncha told him she wanted to learn, the first time he took her up for this nice, uneventful flight. Then the next time, he takes her for a ride with barrel rolls, spins, and even dove into what, I'm sure unintentionally, turned into a stall that could have killed them both. And after he landed and pulled to a stop, he turned around expecting to see her pale and shaking. And instead, she grinned at him and said, well, that was a thrill. Thanks. (laughs) So she started taking flying lessons, and on Sundays, no less, so she could buzz her husband's church services. <laughs> and she was able to solo by the fall of 1928 in this, like, you know, used plane that she bought um, off of Howard Hawks. Um, the next step was getting her pilot's license. And at this point, giving women pilot's license was still somewhat of a rarity and a contentious point. Uh, the U.S. Department of Commerce was even lobbying for a law in the book saying women shouldn't be allowed to fly at that time of the month. What? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. So maybe because of this, or possibly because she was bitchin', she has her friend George Harrell take maybe one of the cooler pilot's license photos ever. He later wound up in a long career taking glamour shots in Hollywood after he met poncho's hollywood friends and like was like seriously like the set photographer at mgm for years i'm just gonna send you a copy of this photo (laughs) so you can see what i mean but and so in this picture she's dressed in men's clothing wearing this beret and just languidly smoking a cigarette (laughs) and this is like her pilot (laughs) isn't it great yeah i kind of want that on my (laughs) And this is her pilot's license application photo, but somehow it got approved anyway. And yeah, so she got it. She's 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 cute. (laughs) Can't hit on her, Lindsay. She's been dead for 40 years. (laughs) Okay, continue. Here's some cool quotes from her right here. Someone asked her why she flew, and she said, to escape from everything conventional. It's my safety vial. Why do I fly? To keep from exploding, that's why. When asked how it made her feel in another interview, she replied, it makes me feel like a sex maniac in a whorehouse with a stack of $100 bills. Ooh. Okay. She took part in the famous Powder Puff Derby in 1929 that featured all female pilots in a race from California to Texas and up to Ohio, but she didn't finish because she crashed her plane landing in El Paso. There was like a truck going across the runway. She cried conspiracy, whatever. Um... To emphasize how odd the idea of an all-female air race was, according to Lauren Kessler's very entertaining account of Poncho's life, 
of the 4,690 licensed pilots in the U.S. at the time of the race, only 34 were women. Huh. Yeah. While watching the diminished league of women who finished in Ohio, Poncho saw this scarlet plane that would become her signature called the Travel Air Mystery Ship, and she bought it immediately. The model was one of only four ever produced. As to its qualities, one observer quipped that the plane was so fast that it took three men to see it. <laughs> For a while after this, Poncho worked as a test pilot. Companies hired her in part so that they could brag, well, Sonny, this little lady can fly this plane. Surely you can. She also participated in air races for a brief period, stealing the fastest female pilot moniker away from Amelia Earhart for a bit, who she referred to as that empty-headed blonde. <laughs> thing, Poncho would bring her chihuahua into the cockpit with her <laughs> with a little parachute. Oh and she became the first female Hollywood stunt pilot. Um, she flew in some Howard Hughes productions, including the infamously unsafe and over-budget Hells Angels. One of her jobs at that time was to fly close to airborne microphones so that the sound of her engine could be recorded. She also dabbled in script doctoring, and when they weren't on the set, she and her tight-knit group of stunt pilots would paint the town red. As she put it, all we did was fly, fight, and fuck. <laughs> When the Depression hit, Poncho had to cut back selling property, stopped throwing parties, to which even a judge once told her, you have the best bathtub booze I've ever had. The best bathtub boobs? <laughs> booze. Makes more sense. Prohibition did not cut her uh, drinking style back at all. And yeah, so she eventually even had to sell one of her planes. And around her in her industry, she saw studios using stock footage in aviation movies, or using young, inexperienced pilots who didn't care how badly they were getting ripped off or how they were risking their lives for undercredited work. So Poncho got together with some of her fellow stunt pilots in 1932 to form the Associated Motion Picture Pilots, one of the first unions formed for film work. She was their secretary, treasurer, and only female member. At first, studios used strike breakers, but then the AFL uh, descended in wrath, as Poncho put it to shut down a non-union Paramount shoot, and when it resumed, it was with only AMPP members. By the end of the year, they had a virtual monopoly and were Hollywood's recognized union for flying expertise. Then she decided to go into politics, running for district supervisor of LA's 32nd district, playing the total maverick, I'm not a dirty insider card, while still portraying herself as a minister's wife and mother. (laughs) (laughs) Even went so far as to literally write, vote for Florence Lowe Barnes across the sky with a plane adapted for skywriting. But she only got as far as fifth out of a field of 13 in the final election, and that was it for her in politics. Although, I guess later when she moved, when she had her barkeep future that I'm alluding to, she once ran for constable so she could choose not to enforce alcohol prohibition. <laughs> Can't beat him, join him. Exactly. Wow. By 1934, she was nearly broke from her reckless spending habits and the encroaching depression, so she sold the property she had left to buy a plot of land in the Mojave Desert. She took with her uh, her now teenage son, Billy, with her and her latest lover, Logan Granny Norse, a pilot and mechanic to help her start an alfalfa firm. I like for her was a little military outpost that even its inhabitants referred to as the Foreign Legion of the Army Air Corps, but that would change. Poncho scratched an airstrip for her friends to land on when they came to visit and started keeping goats and cows. She got a contract with that 
nearby fledgling Air Force base to dispose of their kitchen scraps, fed the scraps to the pig, and then sold the pigs back to the army. Buy more and more lands from this profitable venture, adding a swimming pool and some guest cabins. Sort of a town legend at this point, she'd drive her caddy up to be refueled at the local gas station, and when the townspeople looked in her car, they'd see the backseat was ripped out to make room for Poncho to bring a carload of her dogs with her. <laughs> uh, she also had some employment at the Air Force Base at that time, running a, helping them run a civilian air training school. She even trained a woman who later became a WASP pilot. Cool. And yeah, when... She had women in her classes who just register with them with initials, so Uncle Sam wouldn't realize. <laughs> really? In 1941, her husband, who by this time had picked up stakes for New York City, requested a divorce from her. Finally. <laughs> Seriously? He hung around for that long? Well, I guess he was nervous. I guess if he divorced her, right, it might mean that he would have to actually have sex with someone. Oh, well, could that been his reason he'd been a proper society woman and he decided to marry this other woman and so asked for a divorce hmm. um she granted it obviously um but instead she spread the tale that she'd ridden naked into his church on a horse to demand one <laughs> <laughs> and maybe she was feeling a little bit wounded in the ego so she got engaged to one of her young students a few months later oh. <laughs> wait girl or boy boy 1941 no one's getting engaged like that <laughs> I, don't, I don't know maybe never mind <laughs> so i mean their marriage only lasted a couple weeks <laughs> uh the nearby base known then as muroc began being used more extensively as a testing base for exper experimental aircraft which meant test pilots test pilots who wanted a way to blow off steam but couldn't get back to la because of gas rationing so Poncho started up a guest house with a bar, a clubhouse, a restaurant, pool, and riding stables. People would come film westerns there, and she'd have rodeos. And by the end of the war, she was in the motel and clubhouse business rather than the farming business. Though business wasn't exactly good, she was still trying to get more of a handle on her inheritance from her grandmother, and some of that involved a stock at a hotel in Philadelphia. While trying to unload that stock, she met her third husband... <laughs> In Philadelphia, a handsome Persian dancer named Don Shalita. Two weeks after they met, she brought him back with her to the ranch. They were married in July of 1945, but only lasted for four months before he started missing city life and moved to L.A. But it was an amicable split. She'd still, you know, visit him in L.A. and he'd come out to the ranch sometimes, you know. Um, <laughs> uh -huh, I know. He was also younger than her. <laughs> Way to go. At this point, Poncho's Ranch was basically the, like, sanctioned official club of the Air Force, and she called it the Happy Bottom Riding Club. One version of the story on why it was called that was that the famous pilot Jimmy Doolittle had, when she asked him how his ride had gone, he said, oh, it gave me a happy bottom. Mm -hmm. And whatnot. And there's no way she wasn't aware that there was a double meaning to that name. Uh-huh. Suited her purpose, as you will see soon. As the base expanded, she had a new surrogate family among the test pilots who would come drink at her place to celebrate successful flights and toast to the memory of those whose flights had not ended well. One of those pilots was a cocky 20-something named Chuck Yeager. Uh-huh, that one. Ah. In fact, the day before he was set to break the sound barrier, he broke his ribs accidentally, running one of Poncho's horses into a fence in the dark. 
And in the documentary on the Happy Bottom Riding Club that I watched, his interview about this is awesome. He says, I didn't go to the hospital because it's none of their business. I went to the vet. (laughs) So yeah, he cracked a couple of ribs and then actually had to use a broomstick to lock the door of the X-1 jet. Right before he broke the sound barrier, he had to lock the door of his plane with a hunk of wood because he'd visited ponchos the night before and broke some ribs. So yeah, it was, this was like really kind of her heyday. Mm -hmm. Ended by her kind, you know, daredevil pilots. And at first she was offering steak dinners to any man who broke the sound barrier, but after that became commonplace, the pilots got what she called a booby prize, which was to walk around in their bare feet on this mat covered in these gross fake rubber boobs. <laughs> <laughs> so you might have guessed that this wasn't the most proper of places. <laughs> there was an illegal casino in the back. And all the liquor was flown in from Mexico, likely some of it by Poncho, who wasn't held up in the least by the fact she'd never bothered to renew her pilot's license. Okay. (laughs) This is like my one of my favorite bits. So one night she gets this tip that the feds were going to raid her. So she and like all her lackeys drive all their barrels of booze into the desert and bury it. And then the feds never show, and a flash flood wipes out their markings. So, so you guys know that somewhere in the Mojave Desert is Poncho's liquor. <laughs> and then there is the matter of all the really good-looking hostesses, who are all out-of-work Hollywood actresses. The last name of Smith, with the month or day of the week is their first name. As to whether more than liquor was for sale at the ranch, Poncho encouraged gossip, but officially denied everything. Uh, She said with a wink, but what those girls do on their own time is their own business. She posted a notice of non-responsibility above the bar, saying, We're not responsible for the bustling and hustling that may go on here. Lots of people bustle, and some hustle, but that's their business, and a very old one. (laughs) So maybe there was a whorehouse. For a long while, the higher-ups at the base, at the very least, turned a blind eye to their men's after-activities at the ranch if they didn't personally come join them. When Poncho was married in 1952 for her fourth time, it was a huge party at the ranch with over 650 guests. Some sources say 900, and she was given away by the, like, OC of Muroc, uh, General Al Boyd, and Chuck Yeager was her best man. Seriously? <laughs> Seriously. Uh, There was a dual ceremony. The first was the justice with, like, a regular justice of the peace, and the second was a Blackfoot ceremony. I'm really not clear on why. (laughs) What? Okay, did she, had she also befriended Blackfoots at some point? Nothing I read explained why. (laughs) Okay. No, I'm I'm just saying I think it was probably a, uh, seemed like a good idea at the time thing. (laughs) Okay, yeah. She'd been living with the groom, Mac McKendry, for six years. He was 32 years old to her 51, about the same age as her son. Wow. What a... Okay. Her son mm-hmm. didn't... Her son didn't care. Ah, no. He, uh... Her son apparently briefly got married to a former hostess, which Poncho was not happy about. And... Anyway. That's... That's all that I really need to say about that. Um, yeah, yeah. Fortunately, this was kind of a bit of a last hurrah. Mm-hmm. Doom of the Happy Bottom Riding Club was already sealed. Muroc Base, now Edwards, that she'd been serving at, uh, was expanding, and an extended runway would detour run right through her property. 
And the new head honcho there, General J. Stanley Holton, was a bit of a stickler for rules, and so needless to say, found the bar and club unseemly. So while he was trying to enforce prohibitions to keep men from going to a ranch, the government was sending appraisers to Poncho's land to determine like what they were going to give her for the eminent domain offer. She tried to name her own price, which was $3.5 million, and was insulted when the offer fell far short. Uh, at about the same time, Holton finally found his turncoat among her customers, a Lieutenant Ratcliffe who swore he'd paid for sex at Poncho's ranch. Oh. So the only thing left to do was sue. So wait, she sued him? He sued her. She sued him. A bit of both. Okay. First, she sued the Air Force for trying to shut her business down, saying, I never ran from a fight in my life, and I'm sure as shit not running from these peckerlets. And she sued Holton for defamation of character. She sued the government for undervaluing her land at the appraisal. And she acted as her own attorney at all of these claims, showing up to court in her cowboy boots and arguing. Did she win? Uh Uh-huh. Well, she lost the defamation suit, but... You know, it was like in a way where everyone had to pay their own costs, and she was found innocent of all the allegations on, you know, her running a whorehouse. She was still in the middle of her litigations to get the proper amount of money for her land, when in November of 1953, the point became kind of moot. A fire of unknown origin burnt down the ranch and guest house. Oh no. She won some money in her suit against the government for undervaluing her property while they were making their eminent domain claim, but she still had to ch- send a chunk of it back, you know, for all the lawyers that she had to pay to do that. Mm-hmm. The rest of her life gets pretty dark. Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. Get ready. Get ready. She squandered a lot of that money on business ventures, and she fought constantly with her increasingly unfaithful husband. And her health. In 1957, she um, lost her right breast to cancer, or as she put it to visitors when she'd answered the door in a men's undershirt, clearly displaying her scar. Uh, a couple of symptoms came up, and I had to have my tit cut off. And she lost her for the same reason in 1960. Huh. In 1962, she divorced the philandering Mac. Her farewell note is pretty epic. I was pretty shook up to learn what a thoroughgoing louse you are. We could have built another empire. (laughs) Isn't that like the best fucking breakup note? Slash like date me line. We can build an empire. We could have built another empire. So yeah, after this, she lived in depression in a dirty shack in the desert, taking poor care of her animals and selling off her holdings a bit at a time. But in the late 60s, some of her old friends found her and started encouraging her to take better care of herself, you know. Um, She started speaking at aviation society events again and was shocked and gladdened to see how many people remembered her and who she was. The Air Force base that had supported her and then threw her out threw her a 70th birthday party attended by loads of famous pilots, including Buzz Aldrin, one of her old buddies from the test pilot days. By the way, have you seen that awesome YouTube clip where he punches that guy for yelling at him about the moon landing conspiracy? Oh my god, no. Oh my god, look it up. This like dude comes in, and this is like now, or like, I don't know, five or six years ago. Anyway, when he's like 80, someone comes up to him and starts yelling at him, you're a liar and a coward, and he just decks him. 
That's amazing. I can, however, offer you this really touching moment of her late life. Um, her old friend Paul Mance was going to sell her her mystery ship back that he'd bought off of her back when she was selling off all her possessions in the 30s. And, but then he died in a crash before he could follow through on giving it back to her. So his estate is being sold off, and the moment comes up when the plane is on the auction block. And a murmur goes through the crowd. And people turn, and they realize that Poncho is there, and this is her plane. And everyone puts down their paddles. And so she gets her plane back. Not that she could fly it anymore, but she got her plane back. No, it's like in a museum in California now. However, she still did die alone in her shack in March of 1974. Um, Her ashes were scattered by her son Bill and a family friend Ted over the former site of the Happy Bottom Riding Club. And the ruins were put on the National Register of Historic Places in 1980. And every year, a memorial barbecue is held for her among those ruins. Cool. Like, wait, can... what? Who celebrates this? Who does this barbecue? I don't know. I mean, like, they had it in the documentary. And it looked like it was, like, a combo of, like, people who... Some of them, I guess, were aviation historians. But there's probably still enough people... I guess, that might have been at the Air Force Base at that time. I mean, Bez Aldrin's still kicking. Chuck Yeager's still fucking kicking. He's, like, 90. Yeah. And, like, his whole thing is, like, oh, I guess I don't fly anymore, but I I glide. I guess I can't run marathons anymore, but I'll hike. Like, he's a fucking lunatic. He's awesome. (laughs) That's pretty cool. That would be a nice trip. Thank you for listening to Dame is a Four-Letter Word. I'm Lindsay. And I'm LP. And listen next time when we're going to be talking about prostitutes. Ha, ha, ha.